The first cut on this record has been cross-format focused for airplay success. The men beat on their drums. Hello and welcome to another episode of Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. My name is Alex Doherty and my guests today are Juliet Jakes, Owen Hatherley and Alberto Toscano. We talked about the filmmaker Adam Curtis's new BBC documentary, Can't Get You Out of My Head. We chatted about Curtis's politics, the changes in his documentary style since the early 1990s and why he avoids talking about neoliberalism. Today's show is brought to you by PTO's supporters on Patreon and also by Verso Books, who have lots of excellent titles that may be of interest to PTO listeners. One that you might like to check out is Tomorrow Sex Will Be Good Again by Catherine Angel. In her new book, Catherine Angel explores Michelle Foucault's teasing promise from 1976 that tomorrow sex will be good again. Spanning science and popular culture, pornography and literature, debates on desire and feminism, Catherine Angel challenges our assumptions about pleasure, autonomy and imagination. Tomorrow Sex Will Be Good Again is out now from Verso Books and part of their March Book Club reading. You can buy it directly from their website or get it as part of your Verso Book Club membership. Go to versobooks.com to find out more. And now to today's interview. Juliet Jakes is a writer and filmmaker. She's the author of Trans, a memoir, and her articles have appeared in The Guardian, The London Review of Books, The New Humanist, Granter, and many other venues. Her article for The White Review on Can't Get You Out of My Head will be published soon. Owen Hatherley is the author of many books, including Militant Modernism, A Guide to the New Ruins of Great Britain, and Red Metropolis, Socialism and the Government of London. His latest book is Clean Living Under Difficult Circumstances. We talked about Owen's article on Adam Curtis's hypernormalization film, which appeared in N Plus One magazine in 2017. Alberto Toscano is reader in critical theory at Goldsmiths, part of the University of London. He's the author of The Theatre of Production, Philosophy and Individuation Between Kant and Deleuze, and Fanaticism on the Uses of an Idea. His article on Can't Get You Out of My Head will be published soon by the New Left Review. If you would like to hear the extended hour-length version of today's interview, you can sign up as a PTO supporter on Patreon. For £3 a month, you can access extended versions of regular shows, and £5 patrons also get exclusive access to episodes of PTO Extra, shorter interviews on current events. And if you're outside the UK, you can now also support the show in US dollars or euros. By signing up, you'll also get ad-free versions of the episodes. Go to patreon.com forward slash poll theory other to become a supporter. So when Adam Curtis's new BBC series, Can't Get You Out of My Head, was released, there was lots of mockery of Curtis on left Twitter, people sharing that Adam Curtis bingo card with all of his sort of most well-known tropes. That was just a fantasy line or all the ominous footage of the World Trade Center and so on. And then the various parody videos of his style of narration that have been made as well. 
But there does seem to be a fair range of opinion on Curtis on the left. So there are some who take a, a straightforwardly very favourable view. And for some reason, um, we might want to go into this. He seems to be particularly in vogue with some on the so-called dirtbag left. I'm thinking about the folks at Chapo Trap House and, and then the more explicitly anti-woke Red Scare podcast. Then there's a strand of opinion. I'm thinking of people whose politics might be sort of classed as Chomskyan, so, so media lens come to mind in particular, who are very critical of his work and, and whose problem with Curtis seems to be that he's not producing a very explicitly left analysis. And then there are people, and I'd perhaps include myself in this category, of people who watch pretty much everything Curtis puts out and, and always get something from it, but rarely find that the work is particularly useful for understanding 20th century history or our current moment. I thought first perhaps we could go around and you could maybe say something on your own views on Curtis's work in general. And if we start maybe with, with you, Juliet. Yeah, I mean, I am broadly speaking pro-Curtis. I'm I'm a fan, really. I do I do like his work. I mean, his aesthetic, obviously by this point, you know exactly what you're going to get if you've been watching Curtis films for any length of time. Obviously, his style was, was quite heavily parodied like 10 years ago when All Watched Over by Machines of Love and Grace came out. But I personally, I'm a real sucker for archive footage almost anywhere. I really like ambient music. So I was always going to enjoy Curtis films. I also really like Ariel Bold as a font. So, um, you know, I was <laughs> yeah, always always going to enjoy, enjoy Curtis's aesthetic. I also, you know, like kind of patrician received pronunciation voiceovers whether it's peter watkins or or adam curtis or whoever so so stylistically it just i think we're 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 at the point where it either just appeals to you or it doesn't and and personally i really like it thematically and politically you know i would always say to anyone you know you have to watch curtis's films critically but i would say that about anyone's work i don't think that's a reason to sort of dislike the work, you know, that you might have some sort of ideological disagreements with it. I mean, with, with Curtis's, there's often this this kind of issue of, of of maybe some sort of gaps between setup and conclusion or statements that are quite hard to evidence. But he's doing intellectual history. That as a discipline is is much harder to evidence than, say, economic history or something. But on the whole, you know, I'm really glad he's he's there and he's he's still making work. And I wish it was still on primetime TV rather than just being shunted onto the iPlayer, actually. What about you, Alberto? Yeah, I mean, I wonder if it's uh, maybe not more fruitful rather than approaching him as someone who one um, ascribes to or incorporates into a supposedly left sphere of um, cultural production, whether it's not you know, more useful to, to bracket that and, um, and not to see the films as somehow necessarily conveying a critique of capitalism or a critique of contemporary society that's flush with any particular position on the left. I mean, on the one hand, Curtis himself has made uh, uh, very clear his, you could say, ambivalence or kind of lack of any straightforward political or ideological location. I think my issue, perhaps, if we're going to remain at that level rather than the style or genre of the films themselves is more the role which I think is uh, has always been problematic at least certainly ever since Century of the Self of a certain narrative that he's advancing about the trajectory of the left or in the case of can't get you out of my head of these nebulous 
figures like the white radical and uh, so on and so forth in his own account. So I think the thing that I find more suspicious is not so much that he doesn't have a critical position that I would necessarily ascribe to, is more the role that uh, this um, vision, this figure of the left and its mistakes, which then weirdly then uh, fade into liberals, right? As though the radical leftists and liberals are part of the same broader malaise. That's the thing that I, you know, if there's something that irks me, it's not so much the diagnoses or analyses that I disagree with or find some issues with. It's more the narrative role that this figure has, which I think is perhaps one of the least persuasive aspects of the films in general, right? Not just of, of this one. Yes, that seems to come across particularly in the interviews where he does conflate liberals and the left, or he's asked a question about the left and his response seems to be about liberals or, or in a way that I would recognise those two groups anyway. What about you, Owen? What sort of Curtis fan or otherwise would you say you are? <laughs> I mean, the first one I watched was The Century of the Self and what I think are the ideal conditions to watch an Adam Curtis film, which is not really knowing what to expect and that kind of initial shock is one that's very unrepeatable and all the iPlayer stuff completely loses it of necessity. So, you know, and it was tied with that kind of like, there are five channels, there is very little else on, you may or may not have a dial-up connection and be able to, you know, and, you know, be on a Usenet forum or what have you. And so in that sense, they have this, you know, the, the sort of inserting something like the century of the self into that has a sort of, a sort of disruptive or much as I kind of hate the word subversive effect. And I think that's, that's, that's also the case with Pandora's box and the Mayfair set and all the things that I think of his that are really towering. Like I think those are really, really impressive and important works. And yeah, I sort of came to, came to it then I think. And then, you know, it would sort of go from something where like people would talk about the fact that there's going to be a series and everyone would watch it on the telly to then, you know, in a way that was very kind of, I think, sort of UK-centric in a way, to then it being this much more sort of international and internet-based thing. And on that level, it's not entirely surprising that the Americans are so into it, because it sort of has lost a lot of the the specificity in terms of the media that he's using, and in terms of the way it sits within that. You know, the kind of Rethian voice, the kind of, the unevidenced history, you know, all of these things, that there was a lot of that about at one point. And the direction he takes it in of a sort of much more surreal, sort of shaggy dog story direction is in a particular tradition. And then it kind of is severed from that and it sort of floats around on the internet. In terms of the, it's one thing I, I kind of do think is that, that kind of I've got to gradually come to, I suppose, accept is that when he says, oh, I'm just telling stories, he isn't actually joking or being coy. Like they are shaggy dog stories. They're not analysis. And within that, those, those stories can be interesting or not interesting, I think. But yeah, I mean, positioning in terms of fandom, like, I always really enjoy them, and for pretty much the same reasons Julia has listed. In terms of the response that, that there always is, and all the critical commentary that there is 
on social media is one issue with Curtis's work. And you point to this in your article for the White Review, Juliet, that his his films end up being burdened with very, quite often quite unrealistic expectations, precisely because there's so little work of that nature being produced in mainstream venues. And, and Curtis's visual style, I sort of think, yeah, I can imagine lots of people disliking that visual style, but it's nonetheless, even now, it, it's just nice to see a visual style compared to a lot of documentary output that comes from the BBC and so on. There's a wonderful visual style on BBC documentaries. I don't know what you're talking about. I could watch academics go on journeys in funny costumes all day long. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I hope to do that myself soon. But yeah, I mean, I've just just written a long piece on, on Curtis for the White Review, which will be published next month. And one of the things I say in it that, yeah, there is quite a big burden on Curtis's films because the intellectual paucity of the current broadcasting landscape. And something I say in the piece is that this wasn't the case when he started making films for the BBC. I mean, he actually started in the 80s, but really kind of what we think of as Adam Curtis films with capital letters starts in 1992 with Pandora's Box. That's when he starts making these sort of three to six part series dealing with sort of intellectual and political history, a soundtrack by Brian Eno. That starts there. And I list in the piece sort of what else was on just BBC Two in the first week of um, of June 1992, and it's it's a completely lost world. I haven't got the piece to to hand, but you know it includes sort of documentaries from India and reports on uh, political tensions in Czechoslovakia. I think Curtis actually, I think Pandora's Box isn't even the only documentary series on about science and politics that week to give you an idea of, of how much has kind of changed. So I do think that there would be a lot less pressure on Curtis and a lot less frustration with people either not agreeing with his ideological position or just thinking that, you know, some of his connections and assertions are outlandish or implausible or just not to their liking. If it wasn't just him and Jonathan Meads being allowed to make things for the iPlayer like once every four years, you know. Oh, and you had an article a few years ago, I believe, in M Plus One magazine, where you talk about the trajectory of Curtis's career. Could you say something on how his style has changed over time? I was particularly interested in the way that interviews have dropped out of part of his work. The kind of mean line in that article, really, was that Curtis is obviously fascinated with the internet in every respect, except the effect it's had on its work. Or he thinks the effect is just fine and good, potentially. Yeah, I don't know what, what degree he kind of thinks about it at all because obviously I don't you know I don't know the man you know you get these series that are quite tight especially the kind of half an hour ones from the 90s you know like the living dead and and Pandora's box and and um the Mayfair set and to a degree the century of the south and also the kind of like the kind of self-contained documentaries on Henrietta Lacks or on or Nick Leeson particularly the Nick Leeson one which is which is fabulous that they you know they do something really coherently and even though he's very wayward with it and you know and puts in all of the kind of adam curtis things of sort of paradox and jokes jokes run through all of them in a way that a lot of people really seem to miss i think that explains a lot of why sort of chapo types like him is because they like jokes although it's not always that easy to tell when you listen to them they start to become looser already when they go on to bbc4 you know when you've got like um the power of nightmares and the trap on or watched over with loving grace or watched over by Machines of Loving Grace, sorry, that they, you know, start to get a little bit shaggier, let's say. And then you have sort of Bitter Lake and Hypernormalization and the current one, where there seems to be a trade-off, which is that his budgets have been slashed to almost nothing, which means he can no longer, 
you know, go over to the US and interview a load of bizarre androids and, you know, ask them about, like, you know, the Anne Round Circle and how and how bizarre it was. You know, he's no longer sort of sat in front of Nick Leeson and being told, you know, we didn't have a branch of bearings in Romford. You know, all of those sorts of things have just gone. It's just him and the archive of a much, much smaller budget, but infinite time. And so, you know, and they've become, I think, a fair bit more self-indulgent and and far less just kind of like, in terms of themes and narratives, far less tight. You know, the last two are really about anything and everything. And I enjoyed them very much, especially the last one. But they are about anything and everything, and they are enormously incoherent. Bitter Lake is a bit of an outlier within that, I think. I think in general, people don't really know where to place Bitter Lake. Like, the style has obviously changed because you get these lingering, I think in many ways, kind of quite dubious and pornographic kind of shots of violence. But that one has a very, very tight kind of focus on on Afghanistan and Saudi Arabia and the role of British imperialism in both. Whereas the last two are just a kind of fascinating mess, really. A subscription to The Left Book Club is perfect for socialists and bookworms. The Left Book Club sends the best titles on radical and progressive politics directly to subscribers' doors. You get a book a month, carefully picked by a small, dedicated team. Their choices reflect the most urgent, thought-provoking and important writing from across a broad range of contemporary and classic left traditions. Recent Left Book Club picks have included The Black Jacobins by C.L.R. James, Down Girl by Kate Mann and Authentocrats by Joe Kennedy. The books arrive in handsome, unique editions that draw on the tradition of the original Left Book Club, which was set up in the 1930s to help popularise left-wing ideas and challenge the spread of fascism. In addition to the books themselves, subscribers get access to a thriving community of online book groups and author events, and big discounts from publishing partners like Pluto Press, Repeater Books, Tribune Magazine, and many more. Sign up to the Left Book Club now and get reading. So, Alberta, in your piece for the New Left Review, you sort of try and tease out what argument there is there to the extent that there is. What do you think Curtis's thesis is, so to speak? I mean, maybe I can double back before that uh, a second to follow up on something that Owen just said, which is that I think in many ways the sprawling and dispersive, which is often fascinatingly dispersive, right, an anecdotal dimension of these recent ones, which in many ways, unlike, say, Century of the Self, certainly unlike Pandora's Box or the Mayfair set, work almost uh, best in their gaps and their glitches, right? So I'm thinking, for instance, of the whole uh, Edgar Mittelholzer story that appears in, uh, in Can't Get You Out of My Head and then sort of is not really tied up, right, in any straightforward way with the, with the over-arc. I think the issue is that the more sprawling they become, the more simplistic the overarching narrative has to become, right? And so I think that's what I was trying to explore in that piece, is how, on the one hand, Curtis has found a register that is in many ways more conducive to his sensibilities as strengths, which is the register of following these allegorical characters, right? Michael DeFreitas, Fanny Shakur, Kerry Thornley, and the like, as embodiments of not just transformations in feeling, history, and politics, but also in some sense embodiments or mirrors for some of Curtis's own dispositions, let's say, right? Or Limonov, more <laughs> disturbingly, perhaps. 
But that emotional history, right, to mention the not insignificant subtitle of the piece, then is held together or, or not held together by this framing narrative, which is an annoyingly more simplified version of the one that we had in the century of the self, right? The narrative about a mass democracy then imploding through the vanishing mediation of the failed revolts of 68 into, you know, the age of individualism, self-help, self-care, and self-obsession, which then in turn leads the nominal politicians who no longer have a people to govern to turn to the managerial and algorithmic virtues of finance and behavioral psychology, and then we find ourselves in this pass. The problem, I mean, aside from the peculiar, again, simplified echoes of things that Regis Debray or Christopher Lasher writing in the late 70s in this, I think the problem is that even as a story, it's a story that's so generic and so easily refutable that it's very different than the kind of canvases that we had painted about the role of scientists and engineers and in the history of planning and politics in the 20th century in Pandora's box, or indeed this very specific narrative about the nature of depolitization and the disempowerment of politics that takes place in the Mayfair set. And one thing maybe to end that little reflection that I think is telling is the way in which the moments of critical transition or, and the emblems of critical transition shift in uh, uh, Curtis's various films, right? So if you turn to the Mayfair set, which I watched again after having watched it years ago, borrowing it on a video cassette from Goldsmith's Library and, uh, and feasting on it after watching Century of the Self on, on the television, in, in that video, you know, we have the 1976 Labour Party conference speech by Callahan in Blackpool, I believe, with the famous slogan about Keynesianism, that option no longer exists. Now, strangely enough, as we move to already in many ways century of the self, which with its understandable animus against Blair and Clinton, and certainly here, somehow the key moment is the early 90s, right? And I, I think here there is also a sort of contrarian ideological element, which I haven't entirely wrapped my head around, which might just have to do with the animosity with left and liberal academics, which is Curtis's kind of dislike of any discussion of neoliberalism, even though you could say that the Mayfair set is an excellent complement, right, to histories of neoliberalism that have come out in the past few years. So I guess that's, the, that's what I find uh, also an interesting ambivalence or tension in this last project, right? On the one hand, I found it much more compelling in its parts than uh, everything that he's made in the past decade or so. And on the other hand, I found it even more implausible in its effort at this kind of diagnosis of the now, of our paralysis. And then its escape into the David Graeber quote, I think, is also a sign of this, right? This kind of stand in for, you know, after he's mirrored the paralysis, you know, not least through the ambient soundtracks and the like, all of a sudden we discover that, you know, we've made all of this and we can remake it in a different way, which seems a deeply unpersuasive coda to those eight hours to me. Yeah, I mean, I remember talking to, to, to Juliet about it when it, was, when it was on, and she described that as unearned, which I think is, is, is very well put, because it's just like, <laughs> 
Like, it, it, you know, you can't build all of that up for like, what was it, eight hours? And then literally in the last two minutes go, and then some tests were done. And it turned out this was all bollocks. <laughs> like, you've got to have an episode about why it's all bollocks. You've got to, you know, and it kind of feel that he's sort of, that this one, in various ways, in that kind of tacked on bit of Graeber at the start and end, and in the portrayal of some of the people involved, particularly um, Julia Grant and Afini Shakur and Zhang Qing, that he's sort of wanting to kind of break out of his own cliches a bit, but doesn't really know how. And yeah, I mean, this brings me on to what is my main problem with the series, and it links into the use of the David Graeber quote, which is that you get these eight hours of programming about the collapse of ideology and about this clapped out neoliberalism or centrism, although I don't think he ever uses either of those terms, but you know, the sort of 90s third way. And this set of elites who hate the situation they're in, but have no idea how to change it. And he does all of this without making any mention of Jeremy Corbyn or Bernie Sanders or the Chinese imprisoning young Marxists who were critical of the turn that the Communist Party had taken that he talks about in the film. So when he talk, when he uses the Graeber quote about making the world differently, he doesn't give any heed at all or not even any mention to people who have tried to make the world differently in the societies he's talking about and come up against systems of power, particularly sort of, you know, in the relationship between the media and the political establishment. Now, I'm not chastising Curtis for just not agreeing with my politics, but for him to make no mention of any of these figures, let alone any analysis of where they fit into his narrative, I think is um, is a really kind of glaring omission. I mean, surely these things are like a massive elephant in the room of his narrative, and particularly with regards to David Graeber, because, you know, Graeber was an anarchist who nonetheless was very supportive of, of Corbyn's Labour, particularly in the 2019 election. And obviously, sadly, Graeber died last year, and the film, by using the, the epigrams from, from Graeber, is, is, is clearly a tribute. But Graeber wrote the best piece about the 2019 election that I think I saw, which was all about the lack of ideas, the sort of complete clapped outness of the Labour establishment, and yet their unwillingness to allow the left to lead their coalition, and the way they basically blew up their own party rather than let the left win. And you'd think this would be classic Adam Curtis territory, but I think a big problem for him is that he's using the BBC archive, and you can't really tell that story without using the BBC archive and talking an awful lot about the role of the BBC. You know, from Laura Kunzberg getting in trouble over how she described Corbyn on the issue of shoot to kill, through to Laura Kunzberg telling everyone that activists had attacked Matt Hancock outside Leeds Hospital. There are a million Curtis parodies knocking around of various quality, and whether you find them funny or not, the Ian Duncan Smiths have done, a, I think, a four-part series about the relationship between the BBC and the Conservative Party called hyper Islandization, using Curtis's sort of style and kind of signature music. And, you know, if, if they can see the problem here and set it to a soundtrack of, like, Burial, then why can't Adam Curtis? I'd like to come in a little bit on this because there was a persistent rumour, and I, can't remember, I think I got this from, from a comrade in Bristol, but there was a persistent rumour during the 2019 election that, that Adam Curtis had been seen canvassing. And, of course, everyone knows what he looks like, and particularly everyone knows what he sounds like. So, you know, you can just imagine the canvassing patter 
I've got to I'd like to tell you about one man. Um, this is a story about how, and you know, if you look at his kind of associations, that's not actually that weird to imagine. You know, his association with people like Massive Attack, for instance. You know, lots of the kind of you know the small group of celebrities that that, that supported Labour when it was run by the left for a few years. So. The most generous interpretation I could have, and again, this is purely speculative, and this is a pure example of the, you know, the, the, the old Soviet censor in the head, that you could, as, as, as Juliet implies, you could make an excellent kind of eight-hour documentary on what we've all just been through. You know, it, it would feature the kind of things that Graeber writes about, of the, you know, the role of the BBC you know, the role of uh, that sort of generation of technocrats, uh, you know, the role of generational sort of change and the role of the kind of anti-Semitism scandal within that. You know, you could tie it all together, it'd be wonderful. There's so many, I would love to see lots of footage of Chakramana, you know, kind of with the Curtis voiceover over the top. And it would be unbroadcastable. There is no way that the BBC in its current iteration would broadcast it. And there's a similar thing. There was an interview of Curtis a, a while back where he was asked if there was anything that he had, you know, wanted to, to do that the BBC hadn't let him. And he generally seems very circumspect about this sort of thing. But he mentioned Northern Ireland. And again, this is this totally fits with what we know about the BBC, you know, that, that there are certain subjects that were deeply, deeply taboo. And one of them was Northern Ireland. And one of them in the last few years has been the Labour Party, or rather the taboo being discussed in a certain way. So that absence... I think is is one that he probably is very much aware of. And in many ways, lots of this film and lots of hypernormalization, you know, is obviously glancing towards quite similar arguments to that, that those that have been made by the left about neoliberalism and, and and sort of political political classes or political kind of cohorts. But, you know, I think partly out of like the particular sort of approach to like, I am a storyteller, I do not do anything ideological. That particular act he has to maintain for one reason or another, I think partly stylistically and partly politically. But also just simply at a certain point you bat against the limits of the BBC as it is. That seems both compelling and quite generous in a sense, because I, I, do, <laughs> I, I do think that there is I, I do think that there is a sort of animus or allergy against Leftism probably maybe a more autobiographical one in its uh, English or, or British variants necessarily than in a global sense. I mean, I know you know I, I noted it was quite striking, right? Like when listening to some of those dirtbag left podcasts, so to speak, that he would both blanket castigate leftist and liberals in some sort of amorphous soup in the West or in. Britain especially, repeatedly mentioning in ways that I thought were rather dubious um, anti-war protests and uh, especially the Not In My Name slogan, which I wasn't a fan of either. But nevertheless, it's not what those protests could be reducible to as a sort of emblem, right, of the, of the paralysis of collective politics. And then, at this, you know, whilst, of course, not paying any attention to, you know, student movements, anti-austerity movements or whatever, that's fine. But then there's this curious displacement, right, that takes place. And I noticed rewatching the films in a lot of these films and which also was marked in the interviews where, interestingly, he really went against, especially in that Red Scare one, the tendency, you know, their desire to sort of flatten 
the BLM protests into something having to do with identity politics and wokeness or whatever. And he pushed back against that, right? And he's basically saying this was the only like actual real example of what he's sort of gesturing towards in terms of collective politics in the present. And then looking both at Can't Get You Out of My Head and then back at Century of the Self, for instance, you know, there is this kind of fascination or attachment of his to figures and icons of black radical politics, right? And there's a way in which, you know, for instance, the way in which I think it's the second of the films in this series ends with that remarkable Stokely Carmichael speech, I believe maybe from The Roundhouse, about power, the one that ends with a great cry of study, children study. In Century of the Self, he passes from, from Marcuse to a Martin Luther King speech, which is a praise of being maladapted. There's, of course, a Fanny Shakur, and I, I find this move, which, you know, in many ways is not so uncommon, right, to be both dejected about what's available in one's own space and then displace those energies elsewhere, and specifically towards black radical politics in the United States, quite striking to me. And it seemed to be particularly powerful in this setting. Is that because he sees a certain novelty in that politics to some extent, in spite of the history that he's drawing upon there as as well, in the sense that in the comments that he's made around Bernie Sanders in particular, I mean, on Corbyn, he claims not to know enough about Corbyn to comment, which seems, <laughs> I mean, I don't really believe that. But, you know. but yeah, on, on Sanders, he's simultaneously had some positive things to say. I read an interview he gave in The Quietus where he argued at one point that in the 2016 primaries, he was saying stuff not dissimilar to Trump or almost the same as Trump or something like this. And I was trying to think about a way to read him on this, which doesn't just end up with me being really annoyed. You know, I was sort of thinking, well, it is a way to think about it that he's he's trying to, or maybe not even trying to, but one consequence could be that you could listen to that stuff and think, well, to what extent do we overstate the novelty of the new left, so to speak? You know, to what extent is it too enthralled, perhaps, to a social democratic politics? To what extent does it recapitulate neoliberal modes of being? Because it feels in a way that what he's excited by is sort of big shifts in subjectivity and that really transformatory project would have a quality of novelty that we haven't seen yet, perhaps. I think what he's really fascinated by are really individuals against individualism, right? Like that's what the Stokely Carmichael or Fanny Shakur moment, like on the one hand, he's actually not interested in politics as an anonymous, organized, collective practice, right? Not interested in organization, not in those, you know, but he is interested in the storytelling and the emotional, the way that's emotionally articulated by individuals, but individuals who are not caring or interested in themselves, right? So there is this kind of, and I think, you know, in in some sense, that's why there is a natural tendency, right, to foreground a Stokely Carmichael and a Fanny Shakur, indeed, a Martin Luther King, right? There's both the charismatic mode, there is the fascination with what, you know, Fred Moten calls, uh, what is it, the black political speech, but then at the same time, there is a politics that doesn't seem to make any concessions to self-indulgent consumerist individualism, which he sees as the sort of byproduct, right, of the failures of uh, 68 and the like. So th- there is, I think, a kind of logic in that. You've been listening to Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. If you would like to hear the extended version of today's interview and of other PTO shows, then please consider becoming a supporter. You can get access to extended versions of PTO episodes from £3 a month. And if you're outside the UK, you can also now support the show in US dollars or euros.
go to patreon.com forward slash poll theory other to sign up. Thanks for listening.